Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. start. So, welcome to Season 5, Episode 37 of Live With Greg. I'm here with Jenny. 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 Yeah, I'm Jenny. 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 That's your preference, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you've written a book. I did. And the title is? Mayakovsky Maximum Access. And he was a Russian poet, superstar. Yeah, he was kind of a superstar. He was um, really one of the most important poets of the Silver Age in Russia. You know, Russia has an incredible history of poetry. It started with Pushkin in the 1800s. And um, that was the... uh, the golden age of Russian poetry is Pushkin, who's like a god, like Shakespeare, but times ten in Russia. Pushkin is a, uh, a probably. I was thinking, like, how often does a Russian say Pushkin in the course of a week? Probably like ten times. Right? How often do you say Shakespeare? Oh, no. but I know. I... Right, but the the, the poetry is a huge deal in Russia. Huge deal. But anyway, uh, that was the the golden age of Russian poetry was Pushkin and Lermontov. And uh, then, towards the end of the 1800s, there was this huge flowering of poetry again. It was a silver age. And uh, Mayakovsky caught that. And he was one of the most important guys of the silver age. He was a real cultural monster, I think. And uh, he... uh, he was in a, uh, a, a movement called the Futurist. He had a whole bunch of gang, of, he had a gang of rowdy, disruptive friends. They're all art students, and uh, they just wrecked havoc all over Petersburg and Moscow with their antics and performances. And they just—they uh, were kind of like you can p- c- compare them to like maybe punk rockers now would be a good analogy because they were just uh, they made a point of being outrageous a point of being disrespectful a point of just causing chaos and just outrageousness wherever they went like for for um, their, their debut what they did was uh, they wrote a manifesto called A Slap in the Face of Public Taste, which was basically just, fuck everybody, we're the best, and we're going to spit on you from our towers and screw Pushkin and everybody else. And uh, they were kind of like wild beasts in some ways. And uh, they would do shows and fights would break out. 
one of the futurists was an incredible artist, uh, Natalia Goncharova, really uh, an incredible artist. And she ended up in Paris, but she was a futurist. Well, kind of. She was associated. It was a loose gang. There were different, a whole bunch of different schools, and they melded, and then they'd fight, and then they'd come back. And But uh, she would appear topless at shows sometimes. Just paint. They would paint their faces and their bodies, and they would parade down the street in the fashionable, fashionable areas of Moscow, reciting verse, with top hats, and pictures of painted dogs and airplanes, and just making just handing out flyers for their shows and stuff. And they'd do performances, and the audiences would get on stage, and they'd fight. Police would come. They went on a tour in 1913. Mayakovsky and a bunch of the other futurists, they went on a tour all over the major uh, cities of uh, Russia. And uh, um, they got it got to the point where uh, shows would be surrounded by policemen on horses. Sometimes shows would be disrupted mid-sentence, and they'd be hauled off. So it was it was it was a um, they got a lot of attention, a lot of attention, and it came on the tail end of uh, a movement called the Symbolist Movement. There were a lot of. Uh, before Mayakovsky and the Futurist showed up, there was a symbolist, and that was like Bloch and Brusev and uh, uh, Bailey and uh, Belmont, a bunch of poets who, their whole shtick was that there is a transcendental world that's uh, you can't see. It's beyond the visible. It's on another realm. It's beyond the physical plane, but it's accessible to the mystic poet. Right, they could have access to these beautiful, incredible worlds, and what they did—they were very well educated, very cultured, sophisticates, almost like religious philosophers in a way. But at the same time, there was an element of heavy element of decadence, of perversion, of uh, just uh, the occult, maybe, and. Um, so they saw them, themselves as kind of high priests, and their job was to transmit the transcendent onto, into poems. And it's because you couldn't access it through reason, you had to have kind of a poetic transmission into uh, a body of to something tangible that you could get a sense of the transcendent through symbols in their poetry. And so, but it was up to the poet to be the step-down transformer, right, and get it on paper. So they kind of had a cult of, cultish thing around them, and they, they wrote, they wrote books about, I don't know, a lot of sexual stuff and a lot of mystical stuff in different times and different eras, and there's a little pretentious the whole thing. And then Mayakovsky came who's this young, brash, uneducated kid who had spent a few, more than a few times, he'd been sentenced to prison more than once. He actually spent, he was a, he was from the provinces. He was, his father died. He was a very young kid when his father died. Left the family, flat broke, maybe three rubles. They had to sell all their furniture and they moved to Moscow. And, um, 
that he painted, he did arts and crafts to survive. They had to paint Easter eggs and stuff like that. And so he lived in a really squalid apartment. And um, he helped support his mother and the family by doing arts and crafts. But um, what was my point? Oh, yeah. Anyway, it was quite a contrast to what had been there before. The, the literary movement, the symbolists, highly educated, sophisticated having these intense intellectual discussions and writing all these writing for all these really um, very highly literary journals and just a different world and here comes Mayakovsky off the streets I mean he'd just been released from prison for sedition but it was he he was uh, he got he got involved in the uh, the he was he was a Bolshevik when he was a kid I mean he's like 15, 16 years old, and he was running around with uh, uh, the illegal printing pr- underground printing presses, distributing pamphlets on on Bolshevism and communism. And uh, uh, I don't think it, it was dealing with arms. I think, and also he was involved in um, plotting a, a prison to escape the prison outbreak, the women's prison, which was successful actually. But he was arrested for that. He was just a kid. He's 16 years old, thrown in, thrown into a notorious prison prison in, Mos- in Moscow. Spent five or maybe six months in solitary confinement. Then he's released. This, this is him. It's like 18, 17 or 18 years old. He goes to art school, hooks up with all these other characters, wild characters. And he starts writing poetry. And uh, this is the guy who burst up on the scene in 1913 and just was he was a phenomena because what a contract can you it's like sex pistols and journey mm-hmm. he's, right so he caused a, a he was a sensation I that was a long I feel like a, I, you know I'm not a college professor I'm just somebody who's I'm not a lecturer. You know your stuff, though. So that part, because part of, you asked me if I had, how much of your book I'd read. Yeah. And I said, I just got through most of the introduction to kind of get an idea who M is. And... That puts things in context a little bit. So I'm here to learn, right? And I can tell from your writing, you're very passionate about this individual. Uh, well, you know, I'm not really... I mean, I love him, but he's not my favorite Russian poet. And uh, I came to love him gradually, and he was actually not my first choice, and I never planned to write a book or anything about him. Really, what got me with the Russian poetry was um, Osip Mandelstam, a whole different uh, guy. I mean, Mandelstam is probably my favorite Russian poet. Osip Mandelstam and Anna Akhmatova are my favorites. For them, I have immense and endless respect. And uh, they just move me, those guys. They're incredible. I, I could go on about Mandelstam, but... What, what happened with Mayakovsky was... Uh, Yeah, I got my master's in Russian poetry when I was, you know, in my 20s. And I kind of abandoned it because I couldn't figure out a way to make a living from it except 
an interview for the CIA, which I, 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 I'm incapable of lying. I mean, I can lie, but it's not. I'm not a, a, a talented liar. I'm really. I can't keep track of stuff. It's better for me to just tell the truth all the time because I can't keep. I mean, it's better for a lot of reasons. But even back then, when even if I wanted to, I was not capable of. Wasn't didn't have the kind of intellect or brain for that. So, and uh, thankfully, so because I'm so glad I didn't, <laughs> didn't go that route. But anyway, I couldn't I couldn't make a living uh, except in academia, and I'd seen the academic world, and I didn't want to didn't want to go that route, and uh, it felt so esoteric and ivory tower, and I just didn't want to spend my life writing really obscure papers on the use of persona in Dostoevsky's works or anything like that and do conference. It just seems so artificial and removed from the world. And um, so I just got a job as a... I, blah, blah. I did a bunch of stuff, but the Russian drifted away. Then um, once my kids were kind of... I'd done the heavy lifting for child-raising... I suddenly, I just really got a really powerful urge to go back to um, poetry. And so I started memorizing. Russians memorize poetry, and they can recite poetry at a drop of a hat. They know thousands and thousands of lines of verses, generally. I mean, my educator, my Soviet friends, it was definitely, the Soviets were incredibly passionate about poetry. And uh, they could just... It's some some of my friends were capable of reciting the entire novel of Eugene Onegin by Pushkin. It's, it's it's a long book. They can recite the whole freaking thing, and uh, I was so impressed by that. And I go to people's houses, and on their mantelpiece would be little framed photos of poets, and not family members, and poets on their walls, and I'm hanging on pictures of portraits of poets, and. Uh, Anyway, I was really moved by that. Just how deep the appreciation of poetry is in that culture. And so uh, I started to really feel that really, I really wanted to go and, and reconnect to that in my midlife crisis. And uh, so I did. So I started to memorize poetry. And I memorized, um, you know, maybe 200 poems or so. And uh, one thing led to another, and I was, that's all I was, just for my own satisfaction. And then my husband, um, Bernard, uh, said, could you just write an article on one of these guys for the, my magazine? Because he has the magazine, Sensitive Skin. And uh, I tried to think of who would be a good candidate for an article in uh, this magazine, because it's kind of a post punk magazine and I thought of Mayakovsky would because of all the Russian poets I can think of he's not my favorite he's not the greatest but he is the most charismatic he probably has the most appeal to a western audience because he was so he was just such a character 
And so I thought, okay, here's a good candidate. And so I wrote a little piece on Mayakovsky and did some translations of some of his early poetry. And uh, the article got such a positive response that um, uh, Buddy asked me to write a book. And so I thought, okay. I didn't realize how much work it was going to be. It was so freaking hard. <laughs> it was just, I can't, it, writing is so painful. It's just... It's excruciating, and I hate it. And yet, and yet, when you do it and you get it out, it's uh, it's incredibly satisfying. It's not fun, but it's very rewarding. And uh, as I was trying to translate these poems and stuff, I I realized I needed help because Mayakovsky is a really difficult poet. I mean, Russians can't even understand him a lot of times. And so I, um, I decided to go back, uh, take classes at Berkeley. Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley has one of the finest slop departments in America. So I managed to get in, not as a grad student, but just to take classes there. And I met a just an incredible uh, woman there, Anna Musa, who's the senior lecturer at UC Berkeley. And I was taking classes from her. And I explained what I was, my goal, and she offered to help me. And so I would take classes with her, and then I'd meet with her once or twice a month to go over translations. And she was just uh, so incredibly helpful and so willing to, to, to look at this stuff and analyze it with me and comment. And so I would go to her office and we'd have tea and we'd discuss uh, the translations and I'd ask her all kinds of questions on syntax and words that weren't in the dictionary and the use of the instrumental case where it made no sense and uh, just cultural context. Because if you look at a poem by Mayakovsky, even if you can understand what the, you're an intermediate Russian student, you get a dictionary out and you can make sense of every, you know, eight out of ten words are in the dictionary you can kind of put it together and get a vague sense of what's going on but even when you find all these words in the dictionary still the poem makes no sense it's not just the vocabulary he used in his wordplay because he would make up words and put words together there's a lot of puns in wordplay and distortion of language and deformation of language and uh, to understand all that is, is like unraveling a puzzle. But on, then on top of that, you have the whole cultural thing. You have the whole historical thing. And you have the literary references. And so to really take apart a poem and understand it, you have to know all of that. You have to understand the context of it. And that was the problem I had with not just Mayakovsky, but so many of the Russian poets... You'd read them, and you could sense the depth and the great emotion, and the you know they, you'd be very moved by a poem, but you wouldn't quite understand what the context was. And so, she was immensely helpful. And there's no way I could have written um, a book like this without a native. Speech. Well, I also had a, 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 a friend who retired. Uh, 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 she's she was a, a petroleum engineer. Uh, Soviet educated and uh, a poetry lover but when she was going to school uh, there's 
you can't go to school because you love poetry. You have to you have to be an engineer. Everybody had to be an engineer, like a, a get a real job. Um, anyway, she's uh, she helped she would help me too. She helped me with all the stress marks and the initial impressions, and then I go to on a musa and then really want to take the thing apart. So um, the book came out of our discussions, all the commentary. Um, I wrote a bunch of the essays, but basically the, the take the, the the dissection of the words and the unraveling of all the puzzles of the language was was because of uh, my uh, community of uh, professors and students at Berkeley. <sighs> That's a lot of words. <sighs> But the first, the first poet who really moved me was Osip Mandelstam, and uh, he, he, he was a, uh, he was a Jewish poet, and I find like with a lot of the, he, he really wanted, he had an incredible command of the language, but he never felt quite part of the. Russian culture, and um, there's a there's a lot of pain in his poetry, a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding of the suffering of other people that Mayakovsky is bereft of. Right, Mayakovsky was kind of. Uh, adolescent show-off compared to somebody like Osip Mandelstam or Boris Pasternak or Anak Matava who could, I think, rightfully any of those three could rightfully speak for the nation and the suffering of the nation the suffering of the people Mayakovsky spoke for his own suffering and his own suffering was um, my girlfriend doesn't love me enough the government doesn't support me enough. No one understands what a genius I am. The other three poets you mentioned, yeah. did they live out their life and die from natural causes, or did they choose to end their life early? Well, of those three, um, all were affected by Stalinism and the Great Terror of 1937-1938. They're all deeply impacted by that, especially Osip Mandelstam. Mandelstam wrote a uh, in 1934 he wrote a very famous poem called the Stalin Epigram. It was called the Stalin Epigram, and what it was was a um, a little caricature. What's the word? Caricature. Caricature. Well, caricatures. Caricature. Caricature. Yeah, whatever that word is. Character. Thank you. Stalin, right? Unflattering. Which was kind of an unthinkable thing to do. And he re- he he uh, recited it to maybe a dozen people. 
and Russians are such, the educated Russians were such, at the time were such that they could you know, instantly memorize a poem if they heard it. And um, he was arrested for this and um, exiled. Um, this is 30, 1934. So anybody else would have been executed or sent to the gulag. He was spared because um, he had friends who were advocated for him. There was Bukharin, who was high up in the government, who was kind of his uh, uh, patron in a way. And there was Boris Pasternak, who Stalin actually kind of liked. And uh, when uh, the the, uh, NKVD, which was the precursor to the KGB, actually suggested arresting Pasternak, Stalin said, let's spare this cloud dweller. And uh, he kind of respected Pasternak. And he called Pasternak. It's like a call from God. The phone rings in the communal apartment. Comrade Pasternak, Stalin is calling you to the phone. (laughs) Anyway, so he called Pasternak and said, what's the deal with Mandelstam? Pasternak, I advocated for him. And he was spared from being imprisoned or executed for the time being. But in 1937, uh, he was sent to the Gulag. He died pretty quickly. He was a sensitive guy, not equipped for not equipped for uh, life of hard labor at all. So uh, he died. Uh, he was I don't know, he was in his thirties. He died. Akhmatova, her son, was arrested and spent many years in the gulag. And uh, she was actually forced against her will to write an odes to Stalin and praise him and stuff. You know, the, the threat is if you don't, we'll kill him. And what are you going to do? And so really, and uh, Pasternak Zalabar was sent to the, uh, was sent to a labor camp. They're all uh, deeply impacted by the terror. And I think one of the reasons that Russian poetry is so resonant and so potent and just so moving is that it was... Russia's always been a place of... uh, It's always been... The government has always been oppressive. The Tsars. I mean, for centuries of serfdom and repression and censorship, and under that pressure, poetry became kind of this. It's not entertainment, you know. Here, poetry doesn't mean anything in America. It's just, I mean, the the beats and stuff, freedom and so forth, but it just seems like trivial compared to uh, what poetry is in Russia, where it's the truth, you know? You get, uh, uh, you have to toe the line to survive traditionally in Russia and play along with all kinds of um, repressive and you have to play the game. And poetry was a voice of truth, right? And so, under that kind of intense pressure, if the poet could actually had the courage and the um, ability to actually express the truth, 
very precious. So people relied on the poet to do that. And they read poetry uh, kind of to survive for their humanity, you know, to, to maintain their sense of, of having a soul. So, um, uh, and when I read Russian poetry, I feel that. I feel that. And I just have no interest in English poetry, American poetry. It does not resonate the same way. I feel like everything, all the poetry in Russia was written under duress. And they did it because of their moral integrity in a lot of cases, because they had no choice. Like Mandelstam, I feel like, had no choice. He had to express himself poetically. And knowing he would die. I mean, when he wrote that poem, he knew, as the minute he recited that, he knew what would happen. But he did it anyway. He was, and he did it anyway, because it was more important for him to do that than uh, survive. And uh, uh, I just love him. Uh, uh, I have one of his poems here that I, this first poem, when I read it, I didn't know anything about Mandelstam, but when I read this poem, I felt like, uh, this is it. I'm going to be a student of Russian poetry for this is what I'm doing. wonder if I even have it. I can recite it, but you know, when I recite poetry, I get a little self-conscious and nervous and I forget it, but ah, if I read it, I remember it. Страшно высоте облуждающий огонь, но разве так звезда мерцает? Прозрачная звезда облуждающий огонь, твой брат Петропол умирает. На страшной высоте земные сны горят, соединенная звезда летает. А если ты звезда воды и неба, брат твой брат Петропол умирает. Чудовищный корабль на страшной высоте несется, крылья расправляет. Соединенная звезда прекрасной нищете, твой брат Петропол умирает. Прозрачная звезда над черной невой сломалась, воспе смерти тает. О, если ты звезда Петропол, город твой, твой брат Петропол умирает. Here's my translation, which you heard the Russian, but here's there's just the meaning, right? At a terrible height, a wandering star. But does a star really shimmer like that? Transparent star, wandering light. Your brother, Petersburg, is dying. At a terrible height, the dreams of the earth are burning. A green star is flying. Oh, if you are a star, the brother of water and sky, your brother Petersburg is dying. At a terrible height, a monstrous ship is sailing, spreading its wings. Green star in splendid poverty, your brother Petersburg is dying. Transparent spring over the black Neva has broken into pieces. The wax of immortality is melting. Oh, if you are a star, Petersburg, your city, your brother Petersburg is dying. I read that. That was it. That was it for me. That was it. That still like gives me chills when I read that. 
poem. It's just, fuck. This is poetry. That's poetry for me. It's just kind of earth-shattering. That's milestone. He's something else. He did a lot of great stuff. But Mayakovsky is a genius, you know? He's also moves me a lot. And in spite of his annoyance, he's, 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 he's kind of a brat, but he also, he's, when I hear, here, I'll read some Mayakovsky, and then we'll, we'll get a sense of what he sounds like. I wonder. Uh, uh, I don't know which one. Do 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 Right? <laughs> the things our mind is filled with. God, I know. Well, anyway. From great Russian poetry to... To little ditties from... Computer games for five-year-olds. Feeding time at the pet shop. Get yourself a special treat. <laughs> they had to feed the snakes and the little animals. Okay. Avui. Я сразу смазал карту будня, сплеснувши краску из стакана. Я показал на блудне студня, кассир скулы океана. На чешуе же стане рыбой, прочел я зови новый куб. А вы на чем сыграть могли бы на флече водосточник труп? That's my costume. And you can hear the... He's an orator. Orator? Orator. He would. The one thing that was remarkable about Mayakovsky is how he um, he broke all the rules with poetry. We have to hear the English of that. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Forgot about the English. This is called "And Could You." I promptly smeared the workday map, splashing paint out of a glass. I revealed the sharp cheekbones of the ocean on a platter of jellied meat. I read the summons of new lips on the scale of a tin fish. And you, could you play a nocturne on a drainpipe flute? It's a typical, typical poem of him. It's like just a challenge to... Um, everyone around him to, but I wanted to make a point what was it Mayakovsky the, Mayakovsky the, the, Akhmatov Apostronach Osip Mandelstam very connected to the whole flow of uh, poetry their predecessors very intimate with Pushkin very intimate with Lermontov the whole stream of poets that preceded them they know and respect and adore, right? They see themselves as just another link on the chain of poetry, Russian poetry. And when they write, they're very conscious of the meter, the rhyme scheme, you know, whether it's an anapest, a dactyl, iambic pentameter, or whatever. Each meter in Russia has particular connotations and meanings and associations with previous poems and poets and da-da-da. And when they write, they're extremely conscious of that. 
And when you pick a meter, it's not random. It means something. When you pick a rhyme scheme, it means something. There's a whole subtext. And so um, they're acutely conscious of their, their cultural history and their poetic history. Mayakovsky came, and uh, he had uh, none of that. He just completely forged his own way. He uh, abandoned meter, which was, you know, an unthinkable step. He came up with his own meter. Nothing regular, but a kind of orational, uh, uh, a speaking meter, where he was kind of lecturing the crowd like like Cicero or somebody. And that was a tremendous breakthrough in poetry. Up till then, there had been like little tiny, the symbolists made little movements in that direction with, um, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the term, it'll come to me. But they made a little bit of uh, movement in that, uh, that way with uh, breaking up the meter just a tiny bit. Uh, what's the phrase? I can't remember the phrase. Anyway, but they would still have the same number of stresses. They might skip a beat, very daring, but Mayakovsky just blew the whole thing out of the water. He completely abandoned meter. And yet, when you read, when he, you hear his poems recited, there's a flow and a rhythm to them. It's very compelling, but it's not regular meter. And uh, um, also in terms of, uh, um, like, his content... He was, he was uh, very much in the here and now. Nothing, there are no... Like, if you, if you say certain words, like nightingale or uh, uh, a lump of coal, or there's certain things that resonate. They go back to poems, poems that were written 100 years ago instantly. Uh, you, you know what, what they're referencing. But Mayakovsky didn't reference anybody. He had his own vocabulary, which was a vocabulary from the streets. Drawing with the two poems you read, the gentleman here, Mandelstam, was writing of what was it, unfathomable heights? What was the term? Can't remember. A terrible height. Terrible heights yeah. and shooting stars and your Monster brother. Ships and your brother. Right. And he's writing about jellied meat. Oh. <laughs> and and it seems like part of what you're saying yeah. is the juxtaposition, like this great poet soul. And he's saying, in essence, fuck you. If you can't find that in the regular, then who are you really? Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah, he took the immediate stuff, and he took stuff that wasn't poetic. He, he took uh, things like, he wrote about, he, his poems are populated by uh, uh, street signs, prostitutes, Nightlife, just hooligans. It's it's street life because he lived on the streets through his twenties. He he had to live on the streets until uh, it wasn't until he was in his mid twenties that he actually started to uh, make a respectable living. So that's what that was his world. He wasn't cultured. He wasn't educated. He wrote about his immediate environment, and he didn't care about the distant past or some. Well, he cared about the future, but his focus was here and now. He was rooted in the social and the political and uh, urban life, and he didn't care about. He he just uh, violently rejected romanticism 
and any kind of mystical vision like the symbolists and uh, the other the other these cultural references he said let's just let's let's shoot Pushkin with the cannon you guys because this is garbage right yeah <laughs> and there's something great about that to just blatantly just disregard everything and just but he was a he was a genius and brilliant his poetry is incredible so he could pull it off. Plus, he was a very charismatic figure. And uh, he was kind of a half-performer, half-poet. These other guys were not performers. They were poets. Mayakovsky was, he was, had an act, he was, uh, he was a performer. He needed to be the center of attention. Right. Yeah. He was a big guy, too. He was like 6'3", oh, wow. handsome, lady killer, you know, good-looking guy with a deep voice, booming voice. So here's this burning question. Is there value to us studying and understanding him when the end of his story is he took his life? And and I'm wondering if for myself as a human being Yeah, that's the, that's the big question, and I have the same question. This is one thing this, that that really um, I kept asking myself while I was writing this book was okay. So here's this guy. He's he's a he's a he's an incredible poet. He's a genius. He's an incredible incredibly important figure in the history of Russian poetry, right? Just the what he means to Russians is very it's 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 a lot. Just that. But while I was writing the book, I thought, why am I doing this? What is the force that's compelling me to do this? And um, because I read, I read, uh, uh, well, I think of somebody like David Godman, who uh, moved to Arunachala to write uh, 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 the, the, the history of Ramana Maharshi and interviewed all the disciples of Ramana Maharshi and wrote all these incredible books documenting the lives, the life of a saint, right? And I'm reading my Kossi and I think, okay, this guy is definitely important culturally, but as far as a, a, a spiritual being, and why? And I still don't know. I still don't know. And I wondered, I even, it's like, you know, when you write about somebody and you spend so much time with them and their poetry and their work, you do get a connection. And I resisted a connection to Mayakovsky because I'm a little scared of him. He's a very dominating guy. And also, uh, he's, he, he can be very cruel, too. And uh, I was a little afraid to open myself up to Mayakovsky. But eventually I, it happened. Eventually it did. And uh, I had a dream about him, I, and I would you know, try to talk to him and say, "Okay, look, I'm I'm doing the best I can here. You gotta help me out a little bit. I want to represent you fairly and accurately, and I need uh, I need to feel that connection with you." So I dreamed I dreamed that uh, he 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 uh, he appeared and he was uh, dressed very nicely and had his walking cane and a, a top hat. And uh, he was escorting me around Paris. We were in Paris. 
And we were visiting the shops and going to the clubs, and he was a perfect gentleman, really sweet and considerate and very respectful and attentive. And I had a ball with him <laughs> my dream. And then uh, and I, I, I got a sense that he was really happy to be represented, to be represented because he's not really in, in American um, literature he's not really and, and yet he had a huge impact on uh, on uh, on the on the beats and on uh, some poets like Frank O'Hara and the New York poets uh, he had a huge impact and then and also there is in the in the 30s and stuff there was tremendous movement with communism and People, he was, he came here, and uh, he he recited to huge crowds in America. People adored him, you know. And um, he was the Russian ambassador, kind of the Soviet ambassador to not only America but to Europe and Mexico too. So there is something there. I, I myself don't quite, I still don't quite understand it, but. For me, the, the and I didn't write this book for anybody else except for myself. I feel like um, there was some kind of karmic debt that I paid. I think um, I had a Vedic uh, astrology reading, and uh, I asked about what's this obsession with Russia because I just can't escape it. It's been my whole life. I mean, since I was 15, 14 years old, I've been thinking about Russia. And I'm sure that I was there, and I'm sure that I was a Soviet citizen, and I'm sure that I was a Bolshevik, and I'm sure that I was in the Gulag. And uh, I felt all those like memories from early childhood of this Soviet thing, and beyond that, the Russia thing. There's some deep connection. So the the astrologer Prasenon, I don't know if you know who Prasenon is. Uh, he said, yeah, it looks like about 10 lifetimes. 10, maybe. And when I saw the uh, photograph of my husband's uh, grandparents, I felt like I knew them. <laughs> uh, Soviets. Uh, uh, um, Buddy's father was uh, uh, um, fought in the Red Army, and he, got, he made it over here after the war. But his parents were... Uh, they were um, Bolsheviks, lived in Voronezh, not Voronezh, they lived in Kharkov in Ukraine, border of Ukraine and Russia. One photo of them, and I looked at them and I thought, oh, holy crap, these are my people. And uh, and I, uh, there was some uh, karmic thing, I just had to do this. And it was a huge relief to finish it off. And I don't know why, it's not like even that I chose Mayakovsky, it's kind of like Mayakovsky chose me. And I still don't understand why. And it was a tremendous amount of work, and I never want to do it again. <laughs> and I, I'd be happy if... I don't, I don't expect more than maybe ten people to really read this. I mean, it's a job. It's academic. It's tedious. It's, <laughs> it's a tough read, I think, unless you're a poetry lover. So, I don't know, Craig... Why the book's important. It's not important. It was only important to me. 
And it was important because it gave me a, uh, a reason to connect to um, Anamusa and to connect to um, na- na- my friend Natasha Soltsova. I mean, we all slaved over this together, and there was a bonding thing that happened. It wasn't just me, it was community, group effort. And that was important to me. And it just happened to be Mayakovsky was the excuse for that. <laughs> but now it's going to go out in the world. Yeah, maybe do, somebody will read it. Do you have a publisher? Yeah. Um, um, Bernard has a publishing uh publisher. So, so it's part of his magazine? Yeah, the idea was this was going to be a series. So I did, in the beginning, I got like five different people to commit to writing their own version of this format of uh, uh, translations with commentary. But I was the only one who made it through. It's just such a big job. And uh, I have some people who are still working. Like uh, We have a, a translator for us, uh, um, a CNN who's another great, a contemporary of Mayakovsky's, who's never been, I don't think there's, a, there's not a bilingual edition of the scene in, in English. And uh, my friend uh, Anton Yakovlev wrote that, and he still has not written the introduction, which is the only piece that's missing. Right? And then I have another friend who's doing an edition of Svetayeva, but man, it's a job. And these are working people, and... Uh, the idea is we'd have a whole series of maximum maximum access. My maximum access Sviatayev, who's another Russian great Russian poet, maybe the best of all of the twentieth century. But but uh, so far, so I had but I had this idea. Okay, we'll get a bunch of people, not just me, but like a whole bunch of people who love poetry, and they pick whatever poet they want do the translations, do the commentary, and it'll be part of the series. And I love the idea because it's, 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 it's horizontal, right? Me and my friends and my poetry lover writers and friends, and not scholars necessarily, but just anybody who's willing to do it. And then it's transverse because it connects to the past, and it's a wholesome project. And um, so I had this vision, but so far it's, it's just it's proved to be too much work for everybody. <laughs> It was too much work for me, too. I hated it. But you did it. I did. And you, and I pulled it out. And you've said you're better off for having completed it. Yeah. I'm like free. You, well, but yeah. you could have been free to just say, you know what, I'm not doing it. To just at some point say, I wasn't free. Happening. I wasn't free. It was so. Uh, it grabbed me and it had to happen. That's it. It had to happen. I just felt like almost forced against my will to do it. It was really only for my own gratification. That's the only reason. When's it going out on shelves? <sighs> well, I don't think it's going to get on shelves. It's going to be uh, order by mail kind of thing. It might get. It might get distribution. Are you guys approaching distributors? We'll see how it goes. We'll see how the initial... I mean, I'd be happy if I sold 100 co- copies of this book, Greg. I mean, I'm happy anyway. I don't right. need to sell any of it. But I'd be, it'd be gratifying if other people... Um, if there's other people... I mean, what, what the, the, I, I wrote it for myself. When I was 
trying to just hack my way through this stuff, not just Mayakovsky, but all these Russian poets, I just, I found myself, I was so frustrating because I could sense that there was a whole context that I was missing and I didn't really understand the poem except on a superficial level. I really wanted a gentle hand to just guide me through. But I couldn't find it. I wanted a book with uh, the stress marks in Russian, a really clear translation in English that would kind of just lay me at the feet of the Russian itself. And I want a commentary which would explain the context. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. And so eventually I realized I gotta do it myself or get people to do their versions so I can so that's what this was this is this is the backstory. This might be a real layman question. The mm. story Fiddler on the Roof. Hmm. Do you would you say that's a Russian story? Uh, uh, I don't know the story that well, actually. I mean, I I can't comment. Okay. Probably. My experience. Is it about suffering and art? Absolutely. And, uh, you have to create art in spite of all the gore and suffering and well, misery. It's about the changing of tradition in Jewish life in Russia. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, one example, when you talk about like these huge artistic fissures, is that the right word? Fissures in life, like deep. As you're describing the poets and Russian poetry, I pictured a huge, thick cement walls with dim light and poetry being like a crack in the wall that allows some real light through. Yeah! And making artistic choices. So for example in Fiddler on the Roof you have the main character and he's friends with one of the Russian, what would you call them? Like army guys. You know, mm -hmm. police. And um, they're friends, and they mm -hmm. recognize that there is this thing going on in Russia against Jews and Jews. Yeah, for sure. But they're way out in nowhere, and and yet, in the story, the artistic choice was when the Russians come and thrash the town, <laughs> and to prove a point, and it's yeah. ordered from the czar. Yeah, that it's on the wedding day in celebration of the main character's first daughter. Yeah. And that kind of artistic choice where you just go as extreme as possible to like the heart of pain. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I have very little recollection of the Master Marguerite Oh, Master and Margarita. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, but what I recall is the depth of the story, the depth of like darkness with the traveling carnival, and in essence, evil, juxtaposed with this story of Jesus that the Master's attempting yeah. to write. Mm -hmm. And Margarita as a support 
But if I recall correctly, there was a sacrifice she had to make of self and she did it. No, she turned into a witch. And that was done so the master could continue with his story, right? To rescue him, yeah. Yeah, and that's Bulgakov. And um, uh, there's another guy who's a contemporary of all these people, Mayakovsky. You know, he knew Mayakovsky and Mandelstam, Makmatova, Pasternak, it's all the same circle. He was a theater guy. He wasn't a poet. He was a... a um, he was a novelist and he wrote plays his plays were very successful and uh, he was also deeply impacted by Stalinism and the terror and uh, he was so uh, hounded by um, the Soviet press literary critics everything he wrote he was so viciously attacked that he, he couldn't even write anymore because nobody would Publishes or, or put on his plays or anything, and he wrote Stalin and asked that he be exiled. And Stalin actually called him, got him a job, a kind of a menial job at one of the theaters. But he wrote Master and Margarita during the height of the terror, and it was published in the '60s during the thaw and serialized in Novimir, the magazine that was kind of on the more liberal than the most. But uh, Master and Margarita is, uh, you get two volumes of criticism on that. It's really, even more than the Master and Margarita, it's about um, the character um, Yvonne Homeless. The, he's, a, he's the poet that uh, is in, sitting in the at Petrarch's uh, Park uh, Petrarch's Pond when Satan comes to town and he's talking to Berlioz who's the uh, editor of one of these literary magazines so Berlioz is uh, like representative of one of the there were one of the literary magazines that so viciously attacked Bulgakov himself and uh, this guy the stupid poet who's saying there's no he wrote this uh, he, he um, uh, is, is just a hack who's writing all this anti-religious poetry for the, the publication and then Satan comes up and says oh no Jesus was real and he goes into his whole account of Jesus and the whole history of uh, his, his encounter with Pontius Pilate and the betrayal and all that and the result of this story is that this poet, this hack poet, has a religious experience himself. After that, he goes nuts because um, he's running around Moscow. He loses all his clothes. He, he, he goes into a communal apartment and actually gets a little icon from uh, 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 somebody's apartment and a candle. And I could what's it? He was, yeah, he got an icon and pinned it to his undershirt, and he had a little candle that was set there for the icon. He ends up in a river, like a baptism, comes out of the river, and he ends up in an insane asylum where he meets the master, right? And he actually finds his calling there, his real calling, which is to be a historian. And uh, anyway, it's an incredible book. And it's uh, I've read it in Russian, and uh, it's uh, it's you know he's he's kind of like Jesus 
and uh, the poet, they're both holy fools. Big, big deal in Russia. The whole idea of Jesus is not... He's always betrayed as somebody who's kind of stupid. Right? Somebody who's really naive and innocent and uh, really open to all kinds of abuse. And from that, there's some kind of incredible power. This whole motif of a... Yeah. The simple peasant in Russian literature is exactly what you're saying. It's like the divine being. Well, not, not quite. Well, this is this the whole idea of the Russian soul and Tolstoy and everything depicted the Russian as the peasant as this... But it's not just the peasant, it's the simple one. But yeah, it's simple-minded. There's a great respect for the the simple-minded, naive, like like in Dostoevsky, like um, um, the idiot, Prince uh, Mishkin is is a holy fool. With the the Ivan Ivan Durak was a folk folk character, folk hero in uh, Russian literature, a holy fool. So he's very naive has no skills and no way of, of dealing with the world on a different re- plane of reality, just fumbling through, but somehow, th- like Mr. Magoo, things kind of, or Spongebob, Spongebob Squarepants is a holy fool. Right. Right? In, in our culture, that's the holy fool, Spongebob Squarepants. Somehow things work out because he's just good and his intentions are good and he's totally innocent and he sees the best in people and has no malicious thoughts. He's not manipulative. He's just has trust that that God is there right in the end things but, and, but unless you're crucified or Prince Michigan you end up in the insane asylum or or Yvonne Biedny yeah, he actually turned out okay he's but the story never ends with that like the crucifixion I've read in so many books that the crucifixion isn't what one should concentrate on. It was it's the resurrection which was showing death isn't real. Nah, Rush is all about the crucifixion. I think hmm. suffering Christ, suffering, suffering, suffering. Well, how are we doing? I don't know. Did we Definitely. must have talked for an hour? Oh my God, we talked for more than an hour. Really? <laughs> so it feels like a good place to stop. Yeah. Suffering, suffering, suffering. That's it. Yeah. And then the the uh, the, uh, the the will to create, in spite of all that. You know you're going to die. You're going to be whacked down, but you do it anyway. <laughs> you can't help it. It's a beautiful for you. It's a beautiful not me. It's a It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world.